Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, uh, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. I'm pretty jazzed that we have uh, we have a gentleman as a guest on our show today who I'm going to say is kind of a big deal. Um, and anyone who's an avid provoke listener to Breaking Banks uh, knows that Mr. David Birch needs no introduction. He's an author, advisor, and commentator on digital financial services, a global ambassador to Consult Hyperion, you know, the secure electronic transactions consultancy that he helped to found. He's a visiting professor at the University of Surrey Business School and holds a number of board-level advisory roles. Wired Magazine actually named David one of the global top favorite sources of business information and financial brand named him as one of the top 10 most influential voices in banking. Like I said, kind of a big deal. So today we're talking with uh, David about, I think, one of his favorite topics, which is digital identity. Is that right, David? That is. Um, and as you will discover, uh, I can be very boring on the topic. So so you, you might want to narrow things down a little bit before we start, because otherwise I'll just talk about it for hours. It is, uh, it's the most important topic in fintech, in my opinion. Okay, well, let's start with that. Um, for those of my listeners who maybe don't understand what the concept of digital identity is, uh, why don't you break that down a little bit for us, David? When we say digital identity, what is it that we mean? Well, I yes, I guess that's a good place to start. So when I talk about digital identity, I, I'm not talking about it in any kind of generic sense. When I say digital identity, I, I very specifically mean the bridge between real and virtual identities, the things between... The thing that's the bridge between things in the real world and their, if you like, their sort of shadows in the virtual world. That's what I mean by digital identity. So for somebody like me, uh, I might have several digital identities and each of those digital identities might map to multiple virtual identities. In other cases, you might have, for example, my company, which has one digital identity, but several things in the real world that control it. So you've got things in the real world and they link to digital identities and then those digital identities link to things in the virtual world. So think of digital identity as the bridge that connects the two worlds. So you mentioned that you believe that digital identity was one of the most significant um, topics impacting fintech right now. Why is that? Well, I mean, I, I've said this for some time. I mean, I came to this from obviously a more technological perspective, um, you know, coming from payments and secure transactions where, you know, a few years ago, it became very clear that the trajectory of those of those businesses was going to be centered on identity. Identity was the tough problem. I mean, I hate to say it to payments people, but you know payments are not that complicated if you know who everybody is it's, it's not that complicated payments are digital identity plus some messing around on a spreadsheet and the digital identity is the hard part so that's the 
that was the sort of general feeling. The reason why I guess it's gone up the agenda of a lot of people in the financial sector is because of what the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, said earlier in the year. And he said, actually, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of, the lack of a digital identity infrastructure has become a fundamental friction in financial services. So basically, if we're going to make the financial services industry work better for society as a whole, by which I mean provide more inclusive services at a lower total cost of intermediation. Because remember, you know, one of the big drivers in this space is that the cost of financial intermediation, despite the invention of laser beams and transistors and satellites and robots driving around on Mars, the cost of intermediation has been going up. And that's because of, as you well know, the cost of regulation. So the so the falls in the technology the price of technology have been have been wiped away by the rise in the cost of regulation. And I mean so, nobody nobody knows how to screw up innovation and delay things like lawmakers and lawyers, right? <laughs> we're very well, we're look, very we're very good at that. Well the thing is, you know, you you can't you can't screw around with people's money. So so of course there has to be regulation. But we're caught in this odd sort of cusp between the regulation of the last century and the regulation of, of the next century. And we're sort of stuck between the two things at the moment. So if you have things, I mean, I, I mean, I'll just give you one sort of simple example to illustrate the point. The way we do KYC AML, we build like big walls to try and keep the bad guys out. And then for the people that are on the inside, we make them file all sorts of reports and, and you know, suspicious transactions and things like that. And we end up with optimally the worst system. I can't remember the figures exactly, but I think the head of Interpol, uh, the head of Europol, said that the banks were spending twenty billion dollars a year to intercept naught. Well, he didn't say naught. I think he said, I think he said naught point one five percent of the of the fraudulent flows, which I interpreted as naught. So we're spending an enormous amount of money on a system that isn't really working. If you started now, you wouldn't do it that way. You wouldn't erect barriers to keep people out because you want them on the inside. You can't monitor what they're doing unless they're in the system. Uh, you know, we're forcing people to work. I mean, forcing criminals to work yeah. in cash. Um, you know, my favorite statistic is there are more $100 bills in circulation than $1 bills. Forcing people to use cash, which is not traceable, instead of bringing them into the system and then using the new technologies of artificial intelligence and machine learning to look for the fraudulent flows and track the criminals and try and get a handle of it. You know, that illustrates where we are on this. So Carney said, and he, you know, he's a pretty smart guy, Carney said, the lack of a digital identity infrastructure is just a fundamental friction. We can't make the progress we need to make in the delivery of financial services unless we do something about digital identity. And he then went on to say, because he's Canadian and not familiar with our ways, obviously, he then went on to say that the government should do something about it, unaware that in the case of the UK, the government are literally the last people that can do anything about it. I mean, the litany of failed attempts to create identity systems in the UK is exhausting. So we won't get sidetracked into it at the moment. I, I was going to say, at least, at least uh, you have uh, an environment where attempts were made. I no such attempts have been made in the great United States. 
uh, in terms of attending to establish any sort of framework for digital identity. Yeah, the United States is is a... I mean, I, I think the sort of illustrative examples really are, are, you know, the US and China. They're the two global players that have taken radically different directions. So in China, you have this kind of centralized identity and that's used for everything. And then right. that leads into social credit and all that sort of thing. And culturally, that's probably not, not what we want. Uh, and in the US, you have nothing and a variety of private actors trying to fill the gap. And that seems to have ended up with identity theft absolutely rampant and fraud going through the roof and the cost of intermediation being astronomical. So neither of those examples are the example that we want. And I, my feeling about it is, and, and I'm open to the criticism that this is too technological perspective because that's the perspective I come from. But I think the way to make a breakthrough is to look at what the new technologies of identity and authentication and authorization can do, because they can deliver some extremely counterintuitive properties into the marketplace, and then work backwards and then say, well, okay, well, what do we want? Not not what can we build, but what do we want digital identity to do? And then ask the technologists to do that. So do you think that part of the the friction that still exists, right? We were talking about very high regulatory compliance costs, um, yet jurisdiction after jurisdiction, and now it's becoming quite prolific in the United States as well. California started and other states are going to follow with the focus on privacy. So, right, when you have continuous legislation and new regulatory requirements being imposed vis-a-vis privacy um, with very, very expansive definitions about what um, what is new personal information as linked to a consumer versus um, I think what your position is, is we need, uh, we need a more comprehensive digital identity framework in these countries. Do you think that those two issues are just in constant tension with each other? Tension, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I would say, broadly speaking, what we want the infrastructure to deliver is privacy and security. We don't want to trade those two things off against each other. I mean, I think people who, who perhaps have a, a, you know, a limited understanding, an undeveloped understanding of the topic, see those things as a, as, as a tension, you know, if if you want if you want to know more about people, then you can't let them have security and, and that sort of thing. And that I don't think that's the right way to think about it. Certainly, well, there's an asymmetry there. You you can't have privacy unless you have security. You can have security correct. without privacy. But it doesn't work the other way around. So what we need is an infrastructure that delivers security, and then gives privacy. And of course, my my view of privacy is that it's very closely related to control. Um, that, that, that means something to people. And I think, uh, you know, I mean, uh, the trivial example of this that people always use is, you know, you go into a bar and the bar wants to know that you're over 21. So how can you prove to the bar that you're over 21 without giving them your date of birth or age or anything like that? Now, if you come from the world of cryptography, that's a trivial problem because you live right. in a world of digital signatures and 
cryptographic proofs and so on. It, you know, it's a very trivial problem to solve if you come from the technical direction. If you don't come from the technical direction, if you conceive of people's identity as a sort of index card in a big filing cabinet, which is the, I suppose, I mean, I, I, I label this probably a little bit unfairly, but I, as, you know, this is the sort of bureaucratic knee-jerk reaction to the problem of urban anonymity that, that you, you have to record people as if they were these index cards in a file. And when you want to know, you pull the index card and read all about people. And that's not the cryptographic world. The cryptographic world is a world that doesn't work that way. So the idea of me being able to prove to you that I'm over 18 without disclosing any of my personally identifiable information is nothing in the technological world. But if you think of me as an index card, it's really hard to imagine how that would work. And those are the sort of worlds we've got to bring together. And it is a valid criticism, I think, of people like me and and technologists that we haven't really managed to communicate what the technology can do, I think, to the new generation of regulators and lawmakers. Well, it's interesting that you raise that point. Um, and the point you raised earlier about how uh, people and maybe lawmakers and consumers themselves have sort of a limited understanding of what digital identity technology really is capable of and what it is to what it is today. A company called MyTech actually released a report literally two days ago that examined digital identity from the consumer perspective. And the results of that survey uh, were actually quite interesting. Um, the study found that only 25% of consumers actually feel like they have a grasp on the concept of digital identity at all, even though 65% of them indicated that they use some form of digital identity every single day, uh, which obviously suggests that there's a huge knowledge gap between um, you know, providers and consumers that could hinder the rate of, of adoption. Uh, one of the issues that consumers were most worried about in particular was security um, and were not confident that the existing security measures were strong enough to keep their personal information safe. Um, and we can talk for probably more hours and hours about why consumers just have this deep-seated mistrust of technology companies and why they, they just presume that their information isn't as well, secure as they want it to be. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I take two things from what you've just said, Dara. So you, you started off by saying that consumers have a limited understanding of digital identity. Well, consumers have a limited understanding of absolutely everything. I mean, there's no Fair. point asking consumers how anything should work because they haven't got a clue. I mean, consumers have a limited understanding of how a photocopier works. In fact, I, I defy you to find <laughs> one in 10 people who would know how a photocopier works. Um, but it doesn't matter. They can use them. And we have rules and regulations about electricity and consumer safety and blah, blah, blah. We don't ask consumers how a photocopier should work. You know, we make the photocopier work. And then we have rules that the, the regulators and the industry put in place to, to keep them safe. So, so, I mean, the consumer's limited understanding of it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, we probably need a better narrative to explain to consumers but telling them how it works, I don't think that really gets us very far on that. The other part of that, though, which is their confidence in it, I think is, that's a really interesting topic. And I, I don't mean that in a patronizing sense. I mean that in a real sense. Because, you know, I, can, I could construct the most cryptographically secure 
system for, for generating digital signatures in tamper-resistant hardware in the secure enclave of your mobile phone and communicating that across insecure networks and blah, blah, blah. And I can make all of that work. And that wouldn't, con that wouldn't convince one consumer to use it because I, you know, that doesn't tell consumers anything. So the second part of that, I think, is something that we really have to come and tackle head on. Now, what in practice I think that will mean is that we have to give consumers convenience and then we have to make sure that the security and privacy work properly. And the example I use to illustrate that is, the, is, is putting your finger on your phone. So when Apple first introduced Touch ID, there was a view of, you know, people saw biometrics as something from James Bond films, you know, biometrics right. were about launching nuclear missiles and, and all this sort of thing. And what Apple did quite successfully was turn biometrics from being a, a technology that was about security to being a technology that's about convenience. I mean, customers like to use their finger to log into their bank because it's easy and convenient. Now, the industry under the hood makes sure that it's secure and private. You know, my biometric template never leaves my iPhone and, and so on. So I think we have to kind of think about digital identity in that way and scaling it up. Now, the fingerprint part of that, the authentication part, is a solved problem. And we don't really need to spend any time on that. We already right. have the standards. We already have the systems. That side's fixed. I think linking digital identities to things in the real world, people certainly, that's getting fixed. So you have companies out there, you know, people like Authentics and so on, that can scan documents and check that they're real and look in databases to make sure they haven't been stolen and blah, blah, blah. So that side of it's getting fixed. The bit that's not getting fixed is the interoperability on the use of digital identities. So... If I have to go and log in somewhere and prove to them that I'm over 21 or whatever, you know, where, where's the standard there? That's, that's where I think things are a little weak. There's no, there's no global standard on that side, and we should be making that happen. Consumers shouldn't have to see any of that sort of thing. The consumer experience should be, I go to log into your sex tech podcast, and in order to listen to your sex tech podcast, I have to be over 21. And so you know, your system tells my phone, I need the credential that proves this person's over 21. And the phone says, well, they bank with Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo know whether they're over 21. I'll ask Wells Fargo. And then they go to Wells Fargo. And then Wells Fargo provides some kind of cryptographic token that contains no personally identifiable information. But the mere possession of the token indicates I'm over 21. And I send that to you and you validate it because the and blah, blah, blah. And it all works. But the consumer knows nothing about this. Right. The consumer comes to your website and something pops up that says put your thumb on the phone and that's it. And we so, have to make it we have to make it work that way to get it into the to to really solve these problems in the mass market. So two things there. One, just for clarification, episode four of Tech on Reg, which is my sex tech podcast, you do not need to be over twenty one to listen to. Oh um, it is I didn't it, realize it, that. It, that's okay. It is it is not explicit, although if anyone under 21 is listening to it, like really good for you. Like you're, you're way ahead of things and you're going to learn all sorts of things about regulation <laughs> of the sex tech industry that you didn't know before. Uh, but two, 
you know, my reaction to, you know, some of the, the issues that you raised, um, I think from a practical perspective, make a ton of sense. I keep my lawyer hat on and I say the way the laws are written, right? Uh, a restaurateur needs to ensure that someone is 21 before serving them alcohol here in this country. And there could be a variety of ways to do that and to do that securely and safely while still maintaining people's privacy. But will that be to a regulator's satisfaction that they did that? Because the lawmakers still seem to be so sort of uninformed and they are very used to, well, you, you know, know checking, these bo- checking these boxes in certain ways. So there's, I, I feel like there's universal education to be done. It was really only very recently that there were any sort of, you know, rules of evidence in the U.S. Um, that accepted kind of uh, evidence that was kept on the block as authentic, right? Otherwise, you had to go through the whole kind of normal legal processes and procedures to, quote unquote, authenticate a piece of evidence that was maintained on a block. Um, so there's all sorts of hurdles that my profession decides to put in front of uh, technology in and, and we try to kind of fit it into these uh, rules that have been on the books for, you know, decades and decades and decades that have no real, um, that have no real parallels into the world that you're talking about. I so, don't know how it works in the real world, but like if I, if I go into a bar and they want to know that I'm over 21, I show them, let's say I show them a British driving license, sure. which they cannot conceivably verify. Like they have absolutely no idea whether that driving license is real or not unless this is a bar of anti-terrorist geniuses that have been (laughs) fake driving licenses from 190 countries at the drop of a hat which doesn't exist so so basically the way things work at the moment is open to the criticism that it's not real security it's security theater it's you know when i go into the i it's like the barman and i we're playing parts in a play about security so he he says oh show me the driving license i show him the driving license he can't verify the driving license he doesn't know whether it's real or not and he lets me have a drink and it's like we've played our parts but there's no actual security i i want a lot more than that from the actual digital identity infrastructure we should be moving towards what should actually happen is I go in, the barman uses his phone or something to challenge me, and then I answer the challenge using my phone or my Apple Watch or something, and then my face shows up on his phone, and under the hood is unbreakable cryptography, tamper-resistant hardware, the very highest standards. But none of that is visible to either of us at the point of interaction. That's what I want to get to. Real yeah, security. So, so we have what we have to do then is we have to make sure that uh so I think everyone can appreciate the uh analogy that you drew about kind of the the theater of security as opposed to real security. But in the meantime, the theater of security, at least from a lawmaker's perspective, right? All they wanted, they just want to check a box. Yep, you're checking IDs. We can't give you a ticket. You're checking IDs. So we have to get them comfortable with the fact that checking the Apple Watch or checking, um, you know, the retinal scan is better than 
checking the IDs. It's really just about, you know, everybody's comfort level with um, the implementation of these new technologies. Yeah, but can you uh, see there's, there's a world of difference between between my iPhone checking that it's my fingerprint. My iPhone doesn't know who I am. Right. right? The iPhone just knows that this is the fingerprint of its of its proper user. It doesn't know it's Dave Birch. That's absolutely fine. There's no problem with that. There's a world of difference between that and the, and me putting my thumb on something in a bar where the bar does know that I'm Dave Birch and they're collecting these fingerprint templates. These are different things, right? So what we want is to partition things properly so that we have the security and we have the privacy. And the way to do that is through digital identities. In other words, the interaction between the bar and me is not an interaction between my physical identity and the physicality of the bar. The interaction is between some virtual identity of mine in cyberspace and some virtual identity of the bars in cyberspace. And they interact using you know, modern cryptographic techniques to make all of these proofs. I don't, I don't think we need to... We we don't need to implement this stuff in a way which will undermine people's privacy. You know, we have all the technologies we need to implement these things in privacy-enhancing ways. So one more interesting statistic from that study that I'm interested in your reaction uh, on is that the report actually noted that while consumers very much appreciate the convenience of digital identity, they want much more control over the personal information that ultimately is shared with digital identity apps, particularly biometric information. Um, Over 75% of the respondents believed uh, that digital identities were faster and simpler than physical documents. However, only 17% of the 75% preferred biometric identity verification compared to more traditional methods like showing someone a driver's license that may or may not be real. Well, showing someone a driver's license is a biometric verification. It's just it's the barman that's looking at the picture and trying to work out whether it's you instead of a computer looking at the picture and trying to work out whether it's you. Again, taking on board that I don't care what the public think about anything. (laughs) But the fact is we do need to reassure them and make them feel comfortable with it. That point about control, I think, is really important. But the way we do that is by not using personally identifiable information where we don't need to and that the bar example is a good example the bar doesn't need to see your driving license it doesn't need to know who you are it's like when the bar says are you over 18 then my phone should say if it says anything should say the bar wants to know if you're over 18 can i tell it yes or no that's the you know that's where we should be going with this sort of thing um i i mean i do you know my conception of privacy is very closely linked to to that of control if I feel that, um, so like on my phone, right? So I go to my phone and I look at my phone and I've got Twitter and it says what applications can use Twitter and I can just turn them off if I don't want to use them anymore. Like right. I want something like that, right? I go to my phone and you know what? I don't want those guys to know who I am anymore. It's none of it. I just want to turn them off, you know? So I, I agree with that control point. The question is, what's the underlying architecture that we need to get to to make that happen? And my contention is the underlying architecture is is not taking the world of driving licenses and passports, in other words, taking that world of index cards and making an electronic version of it. Okay. 
or you know the bumper sticker version of that is you know we don't want digitized identity we want digital identity we want identity that's constructed for the digital world and this this goes back to to you know i don't want to sort of talk about marshall McLuhan all the time in these things but he was a genius he did see <laughs> but you know McLuhan said the bureaucratic and remember McLuhan said this in the 60s long before the internet you know the bureaucratic notions of identity just won't work in an interconnected world what you want are forms of identity that are founded on relationships and i i think very strongly this is true so the question the bar asks is a little more sophisticated than it seems at first because the bar is asking the question are you over 18 are you over 21 are you over 37 or whatever it is in boston to buy a drink right that's the question the bar <laughs> sorry <asks>. boston <laughs> But if I tell you I'm over 18, what does the bar care, right? That's not... So what the bar is really saying is, do you have some proof that you're over 21 that can be provided by somebody that I can sue in the event that you're not over 21 and I get held, you know, responsible? You know, they're asking a much more sophisticated... And, and I think digital identity can deliver that kind of stuff. I really do. Because because cryptography can do some amazingly clever things. I'll give you another example, which is cryptographic blinding, which is highly counterintuitive. So I, I, think in, that, I think that one's even over my head. You're going to have to tell me well, no, this, what this that is. is. The, uh, no, blinding is the idea. So, so for example, let's, let's imagine we have some sort of voting system. So you're going to give me a vote and then I'm going to cast that vote, right? But I don't know, I don't want you to know who I cast that vote for. Now, cryptographically, that's actually quite easy to achieve, okay? So the way you do it is this. I create a number. I multiply that number by a, a clever bit of math. A bit of, it's called a blinding factor. And I send this number to you with the proof that I'm Dave Birch and I'm entitled to vote, okay? And then you're the electoral board. So you add a digital signature to that piece of information and you send it back to me. So now I have a thing which says I'm allowed to cast a vote. The electoral board says so. At this point, I use another clever bit of math and I divide out my blinding factor. So now I've got back my original number, but it has a valid signature on it from the electoral board saying this is a valid vote. But neither you nor anybody else knows that that number belongs to me because the number that you signed isn't that number. The number you signed was is a my different number, number with the right. blinding factor. Right. So now I can take that vote and cast it. And whoever receives that vote can see it's a valid vote. It's signed by electoral board. It's allowed. But they cannot tell who that vote was given to. That is incredibly difficult to do with pieces of paper, but it's, it's quite easy to do electronically. Uh, that begs an entirely different question about whether or not uh, those people would would want that information. Certainly voters might want that information secret, but I don't think uh, those maybe on the other side of the polls would want that information secret. They, they actually find that information highly, highly valuable when they know how, uh, how people vote, um, particularly in politics. So, right? Yeah, but you we, see, when I've, when I've taken my piece of paper and dropped it into the ballot box, that's the end of the story. I have no idea whether that was vote for count, whether, whether that vote was counted, whether it went into the right bucket. But when I give you my electronic vote, which you cannot conceivably know belongs to me, but I know it belongs to me, I can log on, I can look in the electronic bucket and I can see, oh yeah, there's my vote, it was counted, it's in the right bucket. I can't do that with a piece of paper. 
Well, that is true. The very first presidential election I actually ever voted in was in the year 2000, uh, Bush versus Gore, uh, where I cast an absentee ballot in Broward County, Florida, home of home of the hanging chads. Um, <laughs> and I am I am quite convinced that was that you. My, that that was me. Um, and I am quite. I was I was in uh, university at the time, so I, I cast an absentee ballot. Uh, in the very county that was the center of the controversy. And I have been quite convinced ever since that my absentee ballot ended up at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean somewhere <laughs> with, with a bunch of, you know, with a bunch of other boxes that have since all disintegrated. Um, but no, all very, all very interesting points. So how far away do you think we are? Are we- so I guess make one point, I'm just being called from, I, I forgot, I'm, I'm going to watch my wife singing in a, in a few minutes. I've forgotten we're running late. So I've only got a couple of minutes. I apologize. Oh, no problem. Um, we're we're wrapping up. The, she, she's singing in a, in a Christmas. Uh, um, That's lovely. I actually have to run to my, my children are performing in Thanksgiving Day assemblies today. So well, that's soon, what should be happening. That's exactly as, what life as soon as about. as soon as we're wrapping up, I'm I'm headed up to elementary school. <laughs> so so let me answer that last question. then. so how soon is that? Well, actually, I, when it comes to how soon, I, I'm kind of changing my mind on this a bit because I, I was, I was thinking that we're not getting any closer to this because, um, you know, all of the evidence suggests that we're not making any progress whatsoever on on tackling this. But I'm changing my mind on that because I think we I think we're about to stop trying to boil the ocean with these kind of global identity solutions, and instead move to more sort of sectoral solutions and the reason i say that is because i'm involved in a couple of projects looking at the idea of developing some kind of effectively a sort of financial services passport an identity that's just for the financial services sector where the banks could get together and agree on the interoperability and then you'll see you know people doing it in the education sector and the travel sector and so on and then those things will be made interoperable under wider trust frameworks so given the priority that's being attached to this by people like the governor of the Bank of England, the fact something's got to be done, and the fact that he was wrong that it should be a government thing, the fact that banks do know how to get together and cooperate. You know, we have Visa and MasterCard. And sure. when, I, when I got off the plane in Austria yesterday, my phone worked and my, my MasterCard worked. So clearly we do know how to make these things interoperate on a global scale. Maybe the thing to do is to just really get focused in the sector we're in, just really get focused on making some kind of interoperable financial services identity. So if I've gone through KYC at Citibank and they've spent all of this money working out who I am and you know, binding me, binding my digital identity to the real me in the real world, then when I go to open an account at Wells Fargo, it shouldn't be like I just got off the boat, right? They should right. be able to use that KYC and even if we could just get that done, the cost savings will be so astronomical because Massive. The, costs, the costs of KYC, AML, CTFP are just so out of control. So, so actually at the moment, I'm starting to feel a little bit more optimistic because I think in the financial sector, the notion of some kind of financial sector ID, some kind of financial services passport, I think that is getting closer. Well, I... We but, can, I can't so I, wait. To I hope I'm finishing on a more optimistic point for you. Very optimistic, uh, particularly in a conversation with a lawyer. We don't get to end conversations <laughs> optimistically, uh, generally. Uh, well, I can't wait to see if you are right. Um, certainly, there is so much technological promise, um, and we start 
banging that drum and getting consumers comfortable with doing that? Yep. Should all of yep. the financial services companies get on board and come up with a, a framework that in finance everyone can be comfortable with? Um, lots of lots of exciting things. Thank you so much for joining me today. No, no, thank you for inviting me. I really, I really, I really enjoy talking about this stuff, and I, I hope. I can show people that the technology can really help in this space. I, I think that we're definitely on the road to doing that. Um, Thanks enjoy, much. In, in, enjoy your concert this evening. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. And you too. Talk right. soon. Have a Bye. great one. Bye-bye.